Well, I have been so excited to talk about what we're going to talk about today. It's going to be helpful regardless of your situation, where you are in life. This is an issue that we all uh, need to address, and when we do, power, profound things happen. I want to start by asking you this question. If God gave you one wish, and you could change anything about yourself, what would you change? Lean over really fast and share that with the person next to you. What would you change about yourself? How many of you leaned over and you shared something physical, something about your appearance or something like that? Uh, that's my first go-to if I would have been you, because I always tell people I have one half of my mom's nose and one half of my dad's nose. And if I could wave a magic wand, I would, I would get a new nose. But I want you to focus on something internal, something that has to do with your character, something that is limiting you in some way. Uh, theologian N.T. Wright says that if you're a Christian, you're just a shadow of your future self. Meaning that when we become Christians, we often think that's it. And God's like, oh no, we're just getting started. This is when the fun starts. And we begin to change and to grow and to become more like Jesus. And so today what I want to do is I want to talk about something that needs to be near, near the top of everyone's character reformation list. Something that every single person in this room needs to wrestle to the ground and change a little flaw that is inherent with what the Bible calls our sinful nature, our flesh, because when we do that, some really cool and profound things happen. Now, to get us started, I want to I share a historical story about a guy named Alexander the Great. Now, Alexander the Great was one of four sons of a man named Philip, the king of a tiny little country in the northern part of Greece called Macedon. As a young boy, Alexander was tutored by the great philosopher Aristotle. And when Alexander's father, Philip, was assassinated in October of 336 B.C., Alexander took over as king of Macedon at the ripe old age of 20. By the age of 30, just one decade later, Alexander had turned Macedon into one of the largest empires of the ancient world, stretching from Greece to northeastern India. Alexander said his goal when he took the throne was, quote, to reach the ends of the world and the great sea, all the way to the other side of China. And he almost accomplished that. He would have accomplished that if his generals and his troops didn't get so homesick and fatigued. Alexander decisively fought and subdued every single kingdom between Macedon and north, northeastern India, most notably the Persian Empire of King Darius III. Now, a little-known fact is that Alexander the Great paid a man named Callisthenes to follow him along and to write positive stories about him, sort of like he was his regular press secretary. The reason you would do that in the day is you would need a constant reinforcement of troops from back home, and so you want to basically share the good news about how great it is to get young men, essentially at that age, to volunteer to go and then to bring money as well. Now, one of the stories written about Alexander the Great, whether it's apocryphal or not, we don't know, is about what happened when he entered India. Stephen Pressfield writes that in India, Alexander encountered some gymnosophists, literally naked wise men, naked yogis, basically these naked teachers, 
that were sitting, sunning themselves on the banks of the Indus River. Alexander Party was trying to get through the busy street, but the yogis had their spot and they wouldn't move. They had no idea who they're dealing with. And so one of Alexander's zealous young lieutenants took it upon himself to jump down and chase the holy man out of the king's path. When one of the wise men resisted, the officer started verbally abusing him, not realizing that Alexander was slowly walking up behind him as he is berating and castigating this young yogi. The lieutenant turned around, noticed he was there, and he pointed to Alexander and said to the yogi, this man has conquered the world. What have you accomplished? He waited for a second, and then he looked up at Alexander and he said, I have conquered the need to conquer the world. Now, deep inside every one of us, there is an internal battle that rages between two things, relaxing and letting things happen, and being proactive and making things happen. Letting things happen and making things happen. Now, it's rarely either or in life, is it? Right? It's, it's, there are times where we need to relax and let things happen. Sometimes there are people in the room that get too stressed out over stuff, and my goodness, just relax and let things happen. And then sometimes there are people who are like, ah, things are going to be fine, and you're like, no, 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 you need to get up and get moving, and you need to make things happen. It's not either or. Now, listen, there are definitely dangers in being too passive, and maybe that's a persistent sin that you wrestle with, but by far the most sinister impact on our lives is never conquering the need to conquer the world around us, to conquer the people that are around us. It causes us to use people, to manipulate them, to cease to love them. And that's because the Bible teaches there's an inverse relationship between love and control. There is an inverse relationship between love and control. Turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter chapter 4. We are in the uh, middle of a three-week series that we're calling Summer Classics. And what we're doing is we're using movies uh, to sort of illustrate and bring to the forefront deep internal issues that all human beings wrestle with. And the movie Cheaper by the Dozen by Steve Martin forces us to wrestle with the necessity of overcoming our need for control. Do something really fast. Turn to the person next to you and ask them, do you think I have control issues? Just do that real fast. Now, some of you are staring at me, and you're like, no, I'm not going to do that, and that's because you definitely have control issues, all right? Now, before we look at our scripture verse, I just want to say two things. Number one, if you're new, like even the Bible is new to you, and you're like, what is this, and what are we doing? First, we give them out for free. Everyone that comes in, we always put stacks of Bibles. Feel free to grab one of those. If you're an electronic kind of person, you can take out your iPhone or your, uh, you know, your Android Go to Google Play or go to iTunes, type in one word CCV Mobile, and bring up our app. Go to the top right-hand side where it says Bible, and you can follow along. For those of you who are new and you don't know that much about the Bible, I'm sending out an email starting next Monday. You can read it in a minute, literally in a minute. But it's going to help you understand the Bible more, and it's going to help you start your day outright in a positive way. And so if you'd like to get those and you'd like to receive those, 
You can sign up to get a text message. Can you bring the screen up here? You can type the number 66866. Just like if you were typing a cell phone number, type in the word Devo. It'll send you a link. You can sign up for it, and you can unsubscribe anytime at all. Now, 1 Peter is a letter that is written by the Apostle Peter to Christians who were, like, freaking out. Because they were like, listen, listen, I thought I'd become a Christian and things would get great. Like, that's why I really wrestled with becoming a Christian in the first place. But now that I'm a Christian, it seems like things are actually worse. Like, ever since I became a Christian, I lost my job. People are bullying my kids. And my life is just sort of spiraling out of control. And I, my, my hunch is there's not a person in this room who can be like, yeah, I really resonate with that. But you do resonate with your life feeling like, Man, I've spiraled out of control before, right? And so deep buried in this letter is this passage we're going to look at. And that Peter addresses how to overcome one of the deepest struggles that we all wrestle with. Look at this. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 says this. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. And that right there, friends, is the answer to overcoming our tendency to control people around us. And you're thinking, I don't get it. All right? Now, here's why. Basically, Peter is like, guys, I'm not going to lie to you. This is about as bad as it gets. So there are two things that I want you to do. I want you to pray And I want you to love. Because when you feel out of control in life, you have only two possible choices. Number one, you can try to control those around you. Or number two, you can love those around you. Because you cannot control and love the people around you at the same time. Do you disagree or agree with that last statement? You cannot control people around you and love people around you simultaneously. There's an inverse relationship between love and control. Now, when we don't get this right, when we're not choosing to love, what it does is it messes up two different relationships. And we're going to talk about each of those right now. The first relationship is the relationship with your spouse or the person that you're getting ready to marry, someone that you're seriously dating. When you choose to control someone instead of loving someone, it starts to mess up that relationship. Now, two people commit to a lifelong partnership, and immediately, what's the first thing you notice right when you get home from the honeymoon? It might even occur at the honeymoon. There are some things that he or she does that you don't like. Now, of course, we never think that there are things about us that they don't like. It's always their issues, right? Now, listen, one of the best marriage books I've ever read was by an author friend of mine named Gary Thomas. Gary Thomas wrote a book called Sacred Marriage. Listen to me. Pull your phone out. Snap a picture of that book. If you're married in 2018, you need to read one marriage book at least. You need to invest in your relationship That is the book. Now, in sacred marriage, the underlying idea behind the book is that marriage isn't primarily designed 
to make us happy and fulfilled. Marriage is designed to make us holy. That's because marriage always presents us with opportunities where where we're forced to either respond the way Christ would in a situation or we're going to kill each other. That's basically the way it works. Marriage by its very nature is the proving ground of discipleship. People are like, I want to grow closer to Jesus. I'm going to become more like Jesus. I need to get into a group. Yes, but if you're married, you're already in a group. You already have plenty of opportunities right before you of becoming more and more like Jesus, the challenges that it brings. One of my favorite lines from the book is this. Couples don't fall out of love so much as they fall out of repentance. Now, for those of you who aren't Christians, you're like, I don't get it. But for those of us who are Christians, we understand that when we're in a relationship with God, he's going to continually point things out to us that we need to change. And when we tell God that we're sorry, that is repentance. And what often happens is the couples will start to drift. And they're thinking it's the feelings of love that's dissipating. No, no, no. It's the feelings of repentance that's dissipating. Because what we do is we cease to look in the mirror and look at the log in our own eye and say, God, help me fix that about myself. And instead, what we're doing is we're looking at our spouse with a splinter in their eye, Jesus says, constantly pointing that out. Marriage, by its very nature, is the proving ground of discipleship. Now, one of the core issues that that Jesus uses marriage to sort of bring to the forefront is this issue of control. So I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to think for a moment about how you have in the past or how, if you're not married, how you would in the future, that if you were to try to console someone, how would you do it? How have you been controlling or how would you control? Right? Have you noticed ways that you seek to control people around you? I was thinking about that this week if I asked Lisa What would she say? How have I been controlling? And then I immediately uh, thought of this little issue that I have. Okay, so time for confession. Can Can I confess my sins to you this morning? All right. I know you think I'm perfect. I know you think I'm the George Clooney of pastors, but I'm not the looks and my perfect behavior. Anyway, time for confession. Here it is. I don't like it when Lisa wears fingernail polish. Am I the only guy in the room who doesn't like when your wife wears fingernail polish? I'm pretty, yeah, I'm pretty much the only guy. Okay, all right. So hear me out on this. Hear me out on this, okay? So I have a friend who says when I was talking to him about this, he's like, I totally think that's like a Midwestern thing. Do they do that? Like there's no, there's flat land between now and Kansas? Like is there, and I'm like, no, I don't think it's that. It's like I truly think when I get to the core of it, I believe my wife is so beautiful, she doesn't need makeup and fingernail polish. Now, part of the reason I'm saying that is I want you to tell her that when she comes here for second service. <laughs> but I, I, truly, I truly believe she doesn't need that. And, I, you know, and it's, a, it's just one extra thing in her busy life that she's adding. And I don't like dark fingernail polish. You know, I like to be lighter and that sort of thing. So I've told her over the years, I just, I, if it was up to me, I wouldn't wear finger, fingernail polish. Now, Whenever I've said that, she has said the exact same thing over and over again. In fact, she's told, she's told me so many times this, this response when I tell her, will you please stop wearing fingernail polish, that I actually wrote it down. So I have it. 
Oh, here it is, here it is, here it is. So when I tell her that I would prefer for you not to wear fingernail polish, here's her response. Too bad. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah, too bad. So now that is exactly what she should say. Because it's a childish, and I really don't care. I really don't care. But, but one response is, if she's doing something I don't like, I can, I can start coming at her, right? I can start picking at her and that sort of thing. In fact, a few years ago, I'm not very proud of it, uh, one time before bed, because I asked her, I said, why do you do it? She said, I have a pre- professional job. I'm a principal, and I, you know, I, 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 so I, wanna, I like it, and it looks professional. So I, I want to feel kept together. She doesn't spend a lot of money. She doesn't do anything. Other than, she just wants to do that. So I'm like, okay. But if you're going to do that, I could possibly do things myself that maybe you don't like. So, (laughs) come on. Come on. Come on now. Come on. I'm not that bad. Um, So I said, okay. A couple weeks go by. Bedtime rolls around. She's downstairs doing something. I go up to our bedroom. For those of you who are cigar people, I pull out an Ashton Madura, um, Maduro cigar. Very harsh cigar. I lay down in bed. I light it up. Come on. Come on. I'm your pastor. I'm not doing anything terrible. So hold on. So I'm smoking this cigar, right? I am filling the room purposely. the room with smoke. I hear her coming up the steps. One last big she comes into the room and I just let it out. She looks at me and she's like what are you doing? I'm like what? I like it. It makes me look professional. And now a little side note. Somewhere in the room there's a guy who's like yeah give it to her. And that guy is not married right now. Okay? I just or he's on the couch which which is where I would be if I actually did that, all right? Now, you cannot simultaneously love and control people, but in a relationship between um, um, two partners, what often happens is subconsciously we're not aware of how we're doing this, where we're constantly trying to jockey for control and manipulate them to do or to be something other than what they are. And what we have to understand, if you get nothing out of the message, it's this. It's God's job to control. It's our job to love. So oftentimes when we feel out of control, it's because we're trying to do God's job. What we have to do is we have to focus on loving and influencing the person that we're in a relationship with. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. I'm going to read to you what is quite possibly the most twisted passage among fundamentalist Christians out there. So I'm going to have to sort of explain it as we go. And it's sort of, they sort of rob the Apostle Paul of the power of this passage. In the book of Ephesians, he addresses couples, and he says this, I want you to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's a military term, basically toe-to-toe, line-to-line. There's something that they want you to do. You're going to bow the knee, and you're going to submit. The question is, in that verse, in verse 21, who's he talking to? Help me out. Is he talking to the woman? Both. Okay. He's talking to the wife that she needs to submit to her husband 
But he's also talking to the husband that he needs to submit to the wife. Let's continue now in the passage. He says, wives, submit to your husbands, yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, meaning the, the head, the point of the spear, the kephalae, the sword, the first one into battle. I, the illustration I use is that's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. If the alarm in our house goes off in the middle of the night, not one time in the entire 29 years of our marriage has Lisa leaned over and said, I got this, you stay here. <laughs> it's me, go, go. Go back, your life insurance paid up. That's, all right, great, great. Wives, submit to your husbands, right? For the husband's the head, the protector of the wife. It's sheer stature and physical, st- all that. As Christ is the head of the body. Uh, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. And he means it. Not in abusive situations, not in sinful situations, not in manipulative situations, but the posture with wives ought to be that they're going to be submissive to their husbands. But the implications, hear me out, is that the husband is doing this at the same time. The exact same thing that the wife needs to do, the husband needs to do, and then Paul turns around and says, just to clarify, I need to add a little more thing for the husband. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and died for the church. So not only does the wife and the husband mutually submit to one another, the husband goes one step further and says, I'm willing to die for you. Now, my question to you, and we'll we'll skip the rest of that. Are you always getting your way? Who wins all the time? Are you placing demands on your spouse other than loving your spouse? Have you fallen out of repentance? And it's simply the precursor to falling out of love. Because you're constantly pointing out the splinter in your spouse's eye when you have 50 logs in your own. That is an issue of control. I'm going to manipulate you into meeting my needs. I'm going to control you. Here's the second. Second relationship that control always messes up. It's not just with our spouse, but it's with our children. Now, let me just preface what I'm about to say by saying this. There's not a parent in this room who hasn't or isn't currently struggling with this issue. There's just not a lot of wisdom out there about how to navigate this particular issue. When our kids are small, you have to use control, don't you? There's nothing wrong with using control when they are little people and they're not emerging adults yet. What to eat, when to sleep, don't do this or you'll get hurt, do this or this might happen, yes or no. That's control. You're exerting control over this little human being in the making. The Bible gives us the authority and the responsibility to do this. In the book of Ephesians chapter 6, children Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and you may enjoy long life on the earth. In other words, you show me a parent that isn't willing to take responsibility and the authority to control their kid in a very loving way, you're going to show me a kid that's messed up. Anybody disagree with that? Now, 
The problem is, is that they do challenge our authority. And they're getting progressively older. And so our, 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 our approach has to shift a little bit. But when they're young, it's all about control. I remember when our youngest or our oldest was, I think she was about two and a half or three. We're at a basketball game. Game's going on. It's halftime. And there are a bunch of players out there on the court still shooting around. Daughter gets up. She's walking. Goes to the edge of the basketball court. And I yell out, don't go over the line because I don't want you to get hurt. They're still warming up for the game. And she looks back at me and smiles because I just laid down the law. So she looks back, looks at the line, looks back, looks at the line, and does this. (laughs) And then looks up at me and goes... I had to contain myself. It was one of the funniest things I have ever, ever seen. And I had to, well, give her a frown. But anyway, but that is parenting. They have a will of their own. And in the context of a loving relationship in the earlier years where there's safe boundaries and control, in that they're able to navigate and control and grow up in a very, very healthy way. Here's the problem. When our kids get older, we have to dial back the control and start focusing on influence. Every parent here of older kids remembers the struggle of knowing, is this a situation where I have to control them, or is this a situation where I need to pull back the control and start to influence them? Listen, this this will help you, I promise. I think I finally figured out when that point is. When you have to shift from controlling a younger child to they get to a certain age where you have to start working and parenting through influence. I figured out when that point is. And uh, that point um, is when they're old enough to be absolutely, utterly embarrassed by you as a parent. (laughs) Do you remember when that happened? See, some of you are parents of younger kids, and this has not happened to you yet. And what parents of older kids want to tell you is, oh, just wait, your time's coming. (laughs) Right? Your time's coming. Because one day there's going to be a flip that gets switched in your kid, and you're going to go from being the cool dad where your kids laugh at all of your jokes or one of the cool moms where they want to be you. One minute you're crushing it. You're going to be on the minute of a, you're, you're on the cover of a parenting magazine. And then without warning, the next minute, they act like you're photobombing their seventh grade field trip like this woman right here, right? Like, oh my gosh, mom, you are so embarrassing. Dad, how could you wear that shirt? You know, the looks, the frowns, the little scowls, the talking under their breath and that sort of thing. And you're like, what happened? What's going on? Now, whenever that point happens, it's at that point where they are mature enough to care about how they are perceived by their peers and by other people as much or more than they care about you. This is a healthy thing. They're asserting their independence and their individuality. Now, what many parents do at this stage is they adopt the cooler parent than the other parent's approach. In other words, to keep their kid lying and keep them going and that sort of thing, they're like, nah, I'm fine. You do what you do. 
You do what you want. I'm here to make you happy. There's always that high school mom that invites all of the students over to their house to get high or drunk there. This is the place you know you can go to have sex and, get, and to get drunk after proms and parties. It's a cool mom. She knows what's happening. She's seeing you. She's laughing. Everybody likes this mom, but nobody respects that mom because there's a difference between being cool and being permissive and breaking the law. The issue isn't whether you're cool or not. That's not the goal. The issue is we need to change our parenting style because here's the thing. If we don't make a shift in our parenting style, the control needed in the early years becomes the cause for rebellion in the later years. And that's because for adolescent children, there are only two responses to controlling parents, and that's obedience or rebellion. And that doesn't mean when your kids get older, there aren't still battles that you're going to have to fight, but it does mean that there are fewer hills that you're willing to die on. And so the predominant approach that parents have to adopt in this stage of parenting is influence instead of control. So parents of young kids, you think it's going to be easier We have to tell you that it's not. It's actually going to get harder. It may not be as as exhausting physically as you're running around with little ones, but the mental game steps up every single year, and it doesn't stop when they get out of your house. Like right now, there are a lot of parents in this room that are in pain because of your children's disobedience, your children's defiance of you. There's always that mom or dad that's that's doing the ode to how, how great my kids are on Facebook, how smart and bright and accomplished they are. And there's nothing, they're humble bragging. There's, occasionally that's great. Occasionally, but excessively, you become a dream case for a psychoanalyst because you're trying to find and define your own worth through your kids. So anyway, there are more parents than not that are actually really struggling with how they're being treated by their children, in part because of the approach that they've been taking, in part simply because children between the ages of 10 and 20 are hellish demons. And so, (laughs) I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. So what we have to do is we have to accept who they are and how God made them, but more importantly, we have to find a different motivation for how how we're going to approach this, Okay. Kids, listen to this, kids are much more likely to change a behavior if it's their idea, okay? Everything we know from social science is that intrinsic internal motivation is more powerful than external control from parents. Author Daniel Pink shares a great example of this. I'm telling you, this is a great example of this. He says, let's say your kid isn't motivated to do their homework, all right? They hate the class or they hate the teacher. The controlling approach, the approach that you would have used for a kid in first grade, for instance, or third grade, for instance, as you would have said, do your homework or X, Y, Z is going to happen. There's going to be an immediate consequence, right? You say, do your dang homework or I'm taking away this and this and this and this. But that's a response for parents with younger kids. A better approach is the influencing approach. Daniel Pink suggests this. He suggests asking your kid, On a scale from 1 to 10, how motivated are you to do your homework right now? What do you think a kid that is not motivated at all to do their homework is going to say? Yeah, they'll say, a minus (laughs) 10,000. 
And at that point, Daniel Pink says, don't overreact. You say, no, seriously. And then what you do is you share some encouraging things about them. Like, listen, you're really smart. And you know, I know this is a stressful time for you. And I've certainly been there. And you share a story from your own life when you weren't motivated to do your own homework and, and why and that sort of thing. And you've been doing great in your other classes. And so seriously, on a scale of 1 to 10, how motivated are you to do your homework? And now that they realize that you're not jumping down the throat, they'll say, I don't know, like about a four. And then Daniel Pink says, look at him in the eye and ask them this follow-up question. Why didn't you pick a three? You said four, but why didn't you pick a three? And then all of a sudden, they're put in a position where they start saying things like, well, if I don't get this done, I might not get a good grade in the class, or it might really affect my ability to do well on the test, or like my lacrosse coach won't let me play, or something like that. What you've just uncovered is their internal motivation. And then what you do is you throw gasoline on that fire, that little ember there. And essentially, I'm telling you right now, between the ages of 9 and 20, that is your parenting job. To line up where they ought to be in terms of the goals and values that we have as Christians and we want, what we want them to be and to uncover and unearth the internal motivations and help them navigate that by finding the internal motivations to be able to make that happen. Occasionally, you still have to use control. No, you're not going to do that. But by and large, if that remains your approach, you will create a situation where your kids hate you. So, if a person came up with or participated in coming up with a change in behavior, they are much more likely to follow through on that change. And I see right now a whole bunch of wives thinking, hmm, I'm going to go home and ask Bill, on a scale of 1 to 10, how... How motivated are you to lose that extra 10 pounds? Listen, kids are smart. Screaming is control. Threats, control. Manipulating is control. Doing the hard work of getting inside your kid's head when they seem to be behind this impenetrable fortress. But if you love them and get in there, and take the time, deflect all the other stuff, get in there. Um, their feeling of you looking like this turns into this. First Peter 4, the end of all things is near. Therefore, whether you're in the 21st century or the 1st century, be alert and of sober mind. Don't lose your, you won't lose your cool so that you may pray and above all, man, love, love those people deeply. Because the act of love will cover over a multitude of sins. Let's pray. God, we reach out and control because we're wounded. As we're being healed, God, help us to love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Brian Jones Sermons. For more information and to find similar articles on this topic and more, please go to Brian's website at brianjones.com.